1, November 14th. A woman wakes up with a line for a poem in her head. She's in that foggy state just before waking up. When you know you're awake, but you can't admit it yet. She catches the line like grabbing a speck of dust before it flutters away. Maybe it's the end tale of a dream, making an escape for reality before being sucked back into the depths of her unconscious. Elizabeth turns in bed. The line puffs into smoke. She lies down for a little longer, knowing she must get up soon, but enjoys lying down before the busy day begins. Her maid knocks on the door at 8 a.m. on the nose. Elizabeth sits up and gives a sleepy smile. Her maid brings in a breakfast tray and a pile of morning papers, along with notes and letters stacked largest to smallest like a small pyramid. Elizabeth munches on some toast and sips on some tea. She thumbs her way through the papers, many of which she has worked for. She reads some of the day's headlines intently, others she skims over. What does quicken her pulse is reading all the acceptance invitations for tomorrow's tea party. She has planned it with her sister Molly for November 15th at 5 p.m. Elizabeth is known for her salons, and at least a dozen of New York's finest artists are coming to her apartment the next day for a quiet, glamorous evening to kick off the weekend. And among the acceptance letters is another invitation to a dinner, a bill, and a notice from her tailor that she might find some time today to have a final fitting for a new gown. Going to her tailor's is the biggest adventure she wants to have for that day. She looks out her window. She relishes her perfect morning, one she's worked so hard for. Then that piece is abruptly disrupted by a message at her apartment door. When she opens the door, she sees a messenger on the other side. He hands her a note. She opens it and reads that her boss wants to see her immediately. By now, it's 10.30 in the morning, way too early for her boss to call her in. He knows she likes her mornings. In a rush, She quickly makes herself presentable, grabs a fistful of bobby pins, slips on her coat and shoes, and heads out of her apartment. She inhales the scent of sugar wafting from the candy store she lives above, which is quickly blown away by the wind and smoke coming from the L train rushing overhead. Elizabeth? is a little worried. Her boss is a tough hang, known as the most difficult editor in New York to work for. 
But so far, they've had an amicable relationship. She works full hours at Cosmopolitan magazine, which is hard to come by as a female writer in New York. As she walks through Midtown, her thoughts pass her by as quickly as the pedestrians on the street. The more anxious her thoughts become, the more she picks up the pace. Did someone not lack a critique I wrote? Did I offend someone? What is this all about? And by 11 a.m., she reaches her office, located on the third floor of an office building. You look divine this morning, Miss Bislin. Oh, why, uh, good morning, gentlemen. You smell sweet and honeysuckle today, miss. Oh, hi, Mr. Howard. <laughs> Once she arrives, she's briskly ushered into her editor's office. Standing in his office, her editor doesn't seem upset. Hello, Elizabeth. What a glorious day. How are you? He actually seems to be in good spirits. And then he cuts to the chase. Before Elizabeth can even answer how she's doing, her editor asks, How quickly do you think you could go around the world? Elizabeth's face contorts. She's confused. What did he just say? Elizabeth Bisland is learning in real time. She is the other woman who will race around the world in under 80 days. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad, A Race Around the World, based on the true story of Elizabeth Bisland. Nothing about Elizabeth's childhood could predict that she would someday be a world traveler. She was born in 1861 in Louisiana on the precipice of the Civil War. As a young girl, her nickname was Bessie, and she could be found sitting under magnolia blossoms writing poetry. She often sneaks away to sit under one of these trees. She stews in the thick Louisiana air as she mulls over which words flow best together. Then she scribbles them into her notebook. This summer's day is like a blossom, uh, a sunset, hmm, a teardrop, the loose-leafed lily pad lounging in the... Oh, that's too much alliteration. Huh, what really does rhyme with orange? The wind picks up and shakes the tree. A magnolia petal or two falls around her. She thumbs through her Lord Byron book, searching for inspiration. It's so nice to have a quiet space to write for a few cherished moments. Then she hears her mom call for her. She startles. She doesn't have much time. She collects all her pens, notes, and books and scurries into her home as she tries to hide what she holds. She hugs her books tightly to her chest, how she wishes her parents would embrace her. She goes through the back door and weaves through the house, trying to avoid anyone. She hops over the corners in her house that she knows creak. 
she tiptoes as quickly and as quietly as she can on the stairs, sucking in her stomach, trying not to breathe too loud. Fortunately, there are plenty of other kids to distract her mom if Bessie gets caught. Bessie opens the door to the upstairs room, and in one of these walls is a hidden cupboard where previous owners have stashed away riches and precious items throughout the years. Bessie pushes back the trunk in front of the wall. She furtively slides her treasures into the safe haven, the only things in the world that really feel like hers. Then she spins on her heels to figure out what it is that her mom wants. Bessie and her family live at the bottom of Louisiana, where rivers broke the earth apart and splintered into the Gulf of Mexico. And Bessie's life was constrained. Her parents, Tom and Margaret, were conservative evangelicals. They married when Margaret was just 18 and when Tom was wealthy. And their family wealth was earned off of slave labor. In their days before the Civil War, Margaret and Tom had a lavish lifestyle. And Margaret had time to write poetry. But then the war hit. During the Civil War, Margaret took newborn Elizabeth and her older siblings up north. They stayed with Margaret's family in Brooklyn and left their massive home behind. And after the Civil War, they lost everything. Four-year-old Elizabeth and her family returned to Louisiana when the war was over. Their house was in ruin and had been used as a fort in one of the local battles. All of the furniture was stacked in front of the windows, broken and scratched, Paintings were torn and hung askew. All the furniture in Bessie's home was as wobbly as the South getting back on its feet. Their poverty strained the growing family because every year it seemed like Margaret gave birth to a new child. So Bessie must have felt like she didn't get much attention with each new sibling. Also, that poor uterus. Her parents didn't have enough money to send their children to school, so Margaret takes on homeschooling them, but mostly complains about not having enough money. With more mouths to feed, money had to stretch farther. And Margaret becomes increasingly unhappy in her marriage. So much so, one day, while she fights with Tom, she threw the grandfather clock down at him. When Margaret had time or needed money, she would sell her poetry to a local paper. Bessie saw her creative mother dependent on her husband, who wasn't providing much. Bessie's childhood and then teenage years were cramped, poor, and ruled under the heavy weight of the Bible. Bessie and her siblings had to read one chapter from the Testament every morning and was not allowed to read secular books on Sundays. 
Those days were dedicated to memorizing a section of the Bible. As repressive as her parents were, they were intellectuals and had a thorough library of secular readings. Bessie's moments of peace are when she gets to read. She thumbs through Shakespeare, Lord Byron, and Keats, classic gateway poets. She falls head over heels in love with poetry. Metaphor, alliteration, and imagery were her only friends. Her books were her escape from her reality, which sparks a lifelong passion. She loves poetry so much, she started writing some of it on her own. But she was nervous. She thought her poems might upset her family. Her poetry was far from religious, so she stored them in that secret cupboard in her house. Whether she recognized it or not, Bessie wanted out of these provincial ways. She longs to be far from home and her conservative parents. She wants to have intellectual conversations, live a luxurious life, have the finest items, richest meals, and never wants to rely on a husband for money. Her ambition couldn't keep her poems a secret. By the time she turned 20, she also begins submitting her writing to the same local paper her mother submitted to. And unlike Nellie, Bessie knows she wants to be published. So she submitted under a pseudonym, B.L.R. Dane. She took pains to ensure no one knew where the submissions were coming from. She went the extra mile and walked to post offices farther away from her home so the postmark would keep her home address private. Every day they got the paper, she scanned every page until she saw her writing in print. She traced her words with her fingers on the paper and whispered them back to herself. One of her published pieces tells the story of a bird who was living behind golden bars and longed to feel its feet on the sand of other countries and fly over oceans. The poem was titled, Caged. Alas, she said, how sweet the world outside. One day, Bessie's mom, Margaret, was asked by her editor if she knew who this talented B.L.R. Dane was. Margaret had no idea. Still, she casually mentions this mysterious poet around the dinner table one night. Bessie paused. She choked on her food and felt ice in her veins. Shall I say anything? Well, I mean, people like the poem, so... She swallows her mush and meekly speaks up from the other side of the table. <clears throat> it's, uh, mother, it is, it is me. It, uh, I am, I am B.L.R. Dane. Her mother gasped. Margaret quietly sighed. Disappointed that she wasn't able to nurture her daughter's gift. Margaret longed for the other life she could have had, one where her writing came from a place of passion 
instead of desperation. But she saw that Bessie had a chance to go wherever her writing could take her. The fact that Bessie and her mom both wrote poetry is where she wanted their similarities to end. Bessie wants financial independence, and that will only happen by her determination. She doesn't linger at home much longer. She wants to leave the countryside and see what New Orleans had to offer. In the winter of 1882, Elizabeth shook off her childhood nickname and set out for a new future. She promised her family she would send money back home. Where Elizabeth had once been deprived of indulgences and raised by the heavy Bible, she is now in the heart of hedonism, progressivism, and modernism. Liz arrives in New Orleans, and the quietness of the countryside is quickly shattered by the blowing of trumpets, horns, and drums that played nightly in the streets and nearby bars. Southern bells promenaded the streets in ornate dresses. Carriages crowd the streets, and art overflows like a hot pot of gumbo. Elizabeth found a room in a boarding house in the French Quarter, where ostensibly she could write without anyone disrupting her. There were more people on her block than she had neighbors growing up. The city intimidated her, but in an exciting way. Every day before she went outside, she stood in front of her door and mustered the courage to go out. I can do it. 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 And each day she opened the door. She stepped out into the wider world and took on its beautiful chaos. Her provincial ways didn't bog her down for long. Elizabeth swiftly becomes the talk of the town. She began freelancing for the Times Democrat newspaper writing poetry, and on high society news. She doesn't have the same aversion to writing about the women's sphere like Nellie does. She knew it was her way in. Liz writes about theater, dances, new novels, fashion, and socialites. Her work brought her to wealthier corners of the city. She lit up every time she entered a massive Victorian home shaded by magnolia trees and crepe myrtles, and interviewed the matrons. Oh, wow, Miss Calhoun. I have never seen such a dress so well-stitched before. Now, Miss Beauregard, what is this little cocktail of yours? I must have the recipe. Madam Perkins, now what do you think of the newest theater piece? And everyone loved her writing. This country mouse charmed her way into every one of the wealthiest homes in New Orleans and became a regular in their social circles. Unbeknownst to herself, Liz was a natural socialite. And before she knew it, she was swept up in the literary and high society scene. 
every night of the week was booked with theaters, salons, and literary circles filled with established artists. This is it. This is what I've been waiting my whole life for. She drew people in with her grace and casual intelligence. Like flies to southern honey, she attracts New Orleans' finest intellectuals and artists, and they stick to her. It's also fair to note that apparently Liz was a total babe. I only mention this because every account raves about her beauty. But that is not why I'm raving about her. Liz's life was fading from shades of gray into technicolor. Every day was different and a thrill. And it was the first time she was really surrounded by money. After years of poverty, she didn't mind hanging out with those who could indulge in the finer side of life. Here, in these circles of old money, Elizabeth realized she would only ever be new money. And she never wanted to marry a man for his wealth. She saw how that turned out for her mother. So her fortunes can only happen from her and her writing. With the whiffs of the suffrage movement in the air, Liz becomes the new kind of American woman, bold, beautiful, and ambitious. And after a year of living in New Orleans, Liz has experienced more riches, art, and conversations than her 21 years combined. She had reached the top tier of New Orleans high society, but something was still missing. This New Orleans social scene may have been a smaller hill to climb than she anticipated. So Liz started to look for a bigger challenge. She had soaring ambitions. Elizabeth wants to go where the big players are. Liz feels emboldened to take her writings as far as she can. So she gathers her things for another move alone and heads north. Elizabeth lands in New York in the 1880s with $50 and a suitcase. She arrives in Midtown and takes a moment to see how tall the city is, how many more people are moving around it. The buildings were larger than the ancient Charleston trees around her home. But finally, she is at the epicenter of cosmopolitan life. All of it spelled out money and success to her. This southern belle arrives in the northern city designed to make or break you. And in the beginning, it tested Liz's strength. When she searches for work, Liz is immediately confronted with that straightforward New York attitude. Like Nellie, she hopscotches from editor to editor looking for a job. The editor of The Sun, Lord Chester, said, My dear little girl. She's 25. Pack your trunk and go home. This is no place for you. 
But Liz is undeterred. She does not listen to this cheesecracker of an editor. Liz continues to pitch herself to other papers. Then one by one, she starts piecemealing her salary together. She freelances for a new magazine, Harper's Bazaar, then begins writing for Illustrated American. And at Puck Magazine, she writes book reviews. Since she enjoys writing about the women's sphere, she picks up work a little faster than Nellie. Suddenly, Elizabeth is working 10-hour days, but is getting paid to do what she loves. The Protestant work ethic quickly overtakes years of her parents' evangelical teachings. By 1887, her older sister Molly joins her in New York. And together, they can afford to move to one of the wealthier neighborhoods. They land in Murray Hill on 31st Street and 4th Ave. 5th Ave at the time was called Mansion Avenue, the strip of the elegant and the rich. Liz lives one block down from the most expensive mansion on the continent. On her street, are fur stores, hat shops, and jewelry makers. And their apartment is directly above a candy shop. Liz's life can't get any sweeter. All of the delicacies denied to her as a child are now within walking distance. Liz is refined and invests in her home. She creates a glamorous sanctuary for her and her sister. After years of hard work, Elizabeth is finally in a space of her own, paid for by her determination and decorated to her liking. In no time at all, she starts recreating her own salons. She invites popular poets, actors, writers, and painters to her home to have stimulating conversations. Elizabeth establishes herself as someone who can talk about any subject in depth for hours. She's aware that the mind lasts longer than looks. One of her lifelong male friends says that when he hangs out with her, I feel like I'm playing with a dangerous leopard and I thank her for not biting me. Unfortunately, Liz still finds that men are more interested in her beauty than her brains. She doesn't want to be gawked at like she's some beautiful creature in a zoo. I am not going to dumb myself down for some man. Honestly, I think she likes intimidating men with her brains and beauty. So she waves men off and digs deeper into her work. New York is the creative challenge she is happy to take on, and she takes the city by storm like a southern hurricane. After years of freelancing, sometimes working for four papers at once, Liz is offered a more consistent job by John Brisbane Walker at the newly acquired Cosmopolitan magazine. She isn't full time. But she is the literary editor, and her column is called In the Library, 
where she reviews the newest books and poetry. This monthly editing pace is much more her speed, even if her editor is a bit eccentric. But finally, she's in a constant rhythm of slow mornings, writing all afternoon and evenings filled with intellectual conversations. For the first time, Liz has no desire to go anywhere. All of her needs and wants are always within reach. Only the seasons change. So on that momentous morning of November 14th, the most important task she had for that day is getting her gown and preparing for her upcoming tea party. But fate had bigger plans for her. That's the same morning. The news of Nellie's race is published. And anyone and everyone interested in travel and technology collectively raise an eyebrow. This includes the editors from other newspapers. They could smell a stunt through all the New York City pollution and garbage. And the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, John Brisbane Walker, is almost impressed. Yes, that Cosmo. Before it had headlines like 90-calorie cocktails, should you text your ex? Cosmo was a monthly literary magazine. John Brisbane Walker, from now on, we'll just shorten it to JBW, made and lost fortunes as routinely as the sun moves around the earth. But he was never deterred for too long. In 1889, he bought the Cosmopolitan magazine from a Christian group with one of his fortunes. It was branded as a first-class family magazine, and JBW wants to rebrand it. He wants content to focus on self-improvement, literature, poetry, first-person stories, and social uplift. However, Cosmo is a monthly magazine, so it never gets the daily or even weekly exposure it needs to get more subscribers. So JBW needs a big pull, and he's not one to shy away from a stunt. So on the morning of November 14, 1889, JBW took the ferry from his home in Jersey City to Cortland Street, the way he does every day. He crosses the Hudson and shakes open the New York world. His fate is about to cross over Nellie Bly's, the way the waves of their respective boats lapped over each other in the Hudson. He skims the paper and reads about the New York world's little stunt piece. Send a woman around the world. Not a bad idea. But he sees a crucial flaw. JBW realizes the timing is all off. If someone is to head east during the winter in the Northern Hemisphere, they will hit the trade winds to the South China Sea and be slowed down. This Nellie Bly will lose days going against the tempests. 
Then she'll bump up against January snow in the Pacific Northwest. Forget about it. All of the trains will be delayed. Instead, the New York world should have sent her west. A woman headed west will be pushed along by the trade winds and deal with a mild European winter. She's going in the wrong direction. His idea percolates until he reaches his office near Madison Square Park. At 9 a.m., he bursts into the office and belts, How fast can a woman go around the world? All of his editor's heads snap up from their writing and stare at him. What buffoons these people are at the New York world. Let's send our own woman right now. However, she will go west. She can ride the trade winds in the Indian Ocean and deal with a milder European winter instead of the brutal American one. Someone, get on it. Where Pulitzer's editors are just starting to relax from the insanity of planning Nellie's trip, all of JBW's editors begin to scramble. This means whoever Cosmo sends around the world has to leave this very second. It is then that JBW sends for his literary writer, Elizabeth Bisland, who is calmly sipping her tea and anticipating an average day ahead of her. And is why she is horrified an hour later, standing in JBW's office, watching him roll the dice with her life. Oh, hello, Elizabeth. How are you? A quick question. How long do you think it's going to take you to get ready to leave for San Francisco? How about 6 p.m. today? When he finishes his sentence, Liz thinks her boss is joking. <laughs> what? She lightly touches her chest. She throws her head back and rolls her eyes. Now, her boss is not one for jokes especially so early in the morning. What is he talking about? Why, he has really lost it. Elizabeth waits for the punchline. As her laughter fades, silence sweeps through the room. And she realizes he isn't kidding. Her throat suddenly feels dry. When she sees that he's serious, his friendly appearance turns to stone, and he asks her more pressingly. You see, there's a race afoot. It started an hour and a half ago. A woman from New York set off today headed to England. She's trying to make it around the world in under 80 days. Nothing, he said, excites Liz in the slightest. I, I can, he has really lost it. I can't focus on what he's saying. I need him to stop talking. I don't want this public attention. I don't want to travel and travel alone, nonetheless. I have nothing packed, but I don't even know what to pack. Around the world, is he out of his mind? Absolutely not. I, I have a tea party tomorrow. Liz pushes back. But in the softest, most southern, not to upset you, darling, kind of a way. So, hon, I have a tea party tomorrow. I can't cancel on all my guests. Maybe you could find some other woman. She bats her eyes. She doesn't like using her looks to get what she wants. 
but she will do anything to get out of this situation. But not many other women work for Cosmo then, and JBW can't waste any more time, which is why he keeps pushing on Liz. I can't waste any more time. It has to be you, and you have to be ready now. 30 minutes go by. Each time she pushes back, he pushes back harder until she is standing on a metaphorical ledge. It doesn't matter if you win or lose. I'll give you an increase in pay, all expenses paid. You'll stay in the nicest hotels in the world. You'll touch every continent you see more than anyone's ever seen. I'll bring you on full time. You don't even have to win. I don't care. I just need to sell more papers. Elizabeth learns the strategy that JBW used to build all of his fortunes. He never took no for an answer and says whatever he can to get what he wants. You are fired if you don't buck up and get ready. Suddenly, the other side of the planet doesn't sound like such a bad idea, as long as she's away from this madman. Through gritted teeth, Elizabeth finally agrees. I will try. They both wipe sweat from their brows. JBW hands Elizabeth a fistful of money. Be at Grand Central Station for the 6 p.m. train to San Francisco or else. She has six hours. As Nellie releases her anxieties into the ocean, Elizabeth Bisland also wishes someone could hold her hair back. Liz is dizzy the moment she leaves the office. She walks back into the busy Manhattan streets, which feel so chaotic. Pedestrians and carriages move every which way, like all of her thoughts. She hails a cab and gets in. Bouncing on the crowded streets, she thinks about how her day had started so perfectly, so delightful. She thinks about her comfortable bed and how deliciously slow her mornings are. Why, I might not even be in my bed for, what, two, six months a year? Who knows? She does not know how long it will take to go around the world or how to prepare for it. So the next few hours are busy ones. I cannot believe I have agreed to do this. I don't want to be part of any of this. I just want to sit in my study and read my books. I am a poet, not some hard-hitting journalist. I want my writing to be published, not my identity. Although Elizabeth is well-read, the specifics of the world feel hazy. Will I have anyone to talk to who will help me if I don't speak the language? God, what is all the point of this? This is so absurd. She gets out of the cab at her tailor's and convinces her tailor. I do believe that I can have a perfectly finished utility dress made for every kind of temperate and constant wear for the next three months by 5 p.m. the latest tonight. <sighs> she takes a feather from JBW's hat then she spins on her heels and hurries home. She bursts into her apartment, ignoring the sweet smells of the candy shop. Panting, she tells her sister Molly the news. 
that they have to reschedule the tea party. And she'll be gone for the next few months. Elizabeth and Molly handwrite apology letters to each of their guests, but her friends will find out about the adventure once they open tomorrow's paper. Once the letters were sent, Elizabeth's head swivels towards her luggage. All of her well-organized, fine clothing, jewelry, and shoes are now strewn across her bedroom as she shuffles through what she should bring. I mean, I'll have to go days without washing my clothes. What am I going to wear in chilly Japan or scorching Singapore? I don't want to look like a potato sack for the next few months. First, she focuses on her essentials, pushing all of them deep into her steamer trunk, a leather Gladstone valise, and a shawl strap that will be slung over her shoulder. Divided between these three bags are her light bodices, silk dresses, sewing kits, slippers, a gown, because obviously, and she gets her new black utility dress. Liz's token look is her new market coat and sailor cap. But most importantly, she brings plenty of bobby pins. She packs a rich, dispositive pins in every one of her bags. So, at a moment's notice, she can plunge her hand into the geological layers of her bag and come up with a fistful of pins. They are the most essential item for women to feel put together, which I deeply resonate with. Whatever will I read for the next two months? How many books can I squeeze into my trunk? Six, seven, no less than ten. I cannot believe I am being put up to this. I do not want to be some conduit for male entertainment just to sell a bunch of silly little magazines. Foolish men, taking no consideration of my feelings, my well-being, my desires into account. Finally, the clock ticks 5.30. Liz doesn't live far from Grand Central, but she still needs to hurry before leaving. Liz does a mental checklist of all of her items. My sewing kit, my shoes, my slippers, my creams. More involved than solving a mathematical proof in her head. All right, I think I have everything. With all of her items, she stops at her front door. She closes her eyes. The fear she felt leaving her New Orleans apartment comes rushing back. I can do it. 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 She builds her courage, takes a breath. Liz is off. She waves down a cab in her new dress, weighed down by all of her luggage. Her apartment is only 10 blocks and one avenue over but it must have felt like an eternity. Traffic ebbs and flows. She rubs her hand over the leather handle of her bag and feels it get damp from the sweat on her palms as they head towards the train station. Her cab drops her off in front of the wide arches of Grand Central. The light around this epic train station is open and inviting. 
Liz takes one last glimpse of the sun before it sets and heads into the windowless train tunnels. On the day Liz leaves for California, Grand Central is only 50 years old. Sadly, the Central Terminal did not have the celestial sky hovering high above her head. It was just a glass and iron dome connecting 12 tracks. People crisscross, crisscross through the main hall. A swarm of businessmen in tall black hats and overcoats try to catch the right train before it leaves the station for Long Island, upstate, and beyond. Liz finds her platform, and on that platform are a handful of her friends and colleagues waiting for her. She's so overwhelmed that her friends saw her in such a frazzled state. She hates this feeling. I feel like there's a swarm of bees in my head. I can't focus on anything. Regardless, she's grateful she gets to see some familiar faces before she leaves. Because everything after this point will be very unfamiliar. At least some people are excited for her. She gives all of her friends tight hugs. She doesn't want to think about how she doesn't know when she'll see them again. What if I never return? They all perk up when the final train whistle blows. Liz gives one last hug, squeezes a hand, steps off the platform and onto the train. She awkwardly walks through the aisles with all of her luggage on her and finds her seat. She organizes her items and sits on the plush cushion. Then her head tips back as the train lurches forward, slowly inching away from New York. She turns and looks at herself in the black mirror of the window. For the first time that day, she really sees herself. Her hair is tied up under her new sailor cap. Her body is sore and she sees a little bit of panic in her eyes. Where Nellie left with bittersweet feelings in her stomach, Liz leaves with confusion and fear. Nellie takes a boat towards the east, and Liz sits on her train, heading west. Although they are about to take on the same task and hit the same destinations, their journeys will be the complete inverse of each other. The official clock starts now, and the universe couldn't have chosen a more different woman to race Nellie Bly around the world. On November 14th at 6 p.m., Elizabeth's countdown begins. Nellie has an eight-and-a-half-hour head start. Liz blinks, and suddenly, she is off for 80 days. The most beautiful woman in journalism is leaving the station, where Liz has waited so long to explore the world. This was not how she envisioned it. Her wingspan is being put to the test. 
she doesn't know if she's strong enough to fly so far. As the train moves farther away from her home, Liz internally searches for strength the way she will for bobby pins. By 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, both women's backs are to New York, headed off into the wild unknown. A Race Around the World was written, produced, researched, narrated, scripted, edited, edited again, rescripted, soundscaped, scored, and voiced by me, Adrian Bain. Sam Dingman was our editorial consultant and emotional support. Lord Chester was played by Jonathan Tenace. Mr. Howard was played by Sam Dingman. John Brisbane Walker was played by Nick Markovitz, and Father Time was played by Jake Dingman. Resources used in this show are 80 Days by Matthew Goodman, In Seven Stages, A Flying Trip Around the World by Elizabeth Bisland. And for more resources and readings that helped bring the show alive, head to the website Strangers Abroad Podcast and search for A Race Around the World. Please rate, review, and subscribe to A Race Around the World. And if you liked what you heard, please email or leave a review. I will read it on Ye Old TikToks, and you can go to Strangers Abroad Podcast on TikTok for bonus content that didn't make it into the show. Please email strangersabroadpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and come back next week for another leg in the journey of Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bisland. Safe travels to everyone out there. <laughs>